Open up your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1. And our scripture reading this morning will be uh, verses 12 through 18. James chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. As we're continuing our series on the letter of James called Faith Works. And um, I know it's been several weeks and we're still not even halfway through James chapter 1. The pace picks up. (laughs) A few chuckles out there. The pace does pick up after this chapter. Um, So some of you are like, yes, when are we getting into the rest of it? Well, we'll get to that, Lord willing. And so um, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 will be our scripture passage. And if you are turned there, I'd invite you uh, to follow along as I read James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. And God, we come now, uh, having heard your word, may we have hearts that are really dependent on what it is that you would teach us and how valuable your word is to sustain us and to nourish us in the midst of trials and difficulties. We think of how even Jesus, as he was tempted in the wilderness responded to each temptation and challenge by quoting your word. God, we thank you that your word is that powerful. And as Jesus said that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, God, may we feast on your word this morning in this letter by the brother of our Lord, James. May we feast on it. May it nourish us in the midst of whatever trials we would experience. We ask you do that in Christ's precious name and all God's people said, amen and amen invite you to uh, uh, take a, your, your handout. Hopefully you received the handout when you came in and there's an outline there for you to follow. Um, and kids, this is a great way for you to kind of keep track of what's going on here, uh, to write some of the, the things down in the blanks. Um, we're in the middle of this entire passage here from basically from verse two all the way through 18 is dealing with this topic of trials. And so this is the third week that we are in this topic on trials, 
that James is uh, addressing, the testing of our faith. And a couple of things that we've, we've seen throughout this. We've seen that like God is sovereign, that he is the all-powerful, almighty God. And we've also seen in this passage uh, allusions to God's goodness and his generousness and his graciousness. And so this might raise the question that I think a lot of people have. If God is both sovereign and, and good, why am I going through trials? Why is he putting me through these things? And as is often the case, when we go through trials, don't know about you, I kind of do, I kind of know a little bit about you, but I know more about me, that when I go through trials, the best part of me just comes right out, <laughs> right? How many of you go, yeah, that's me, the best part of me just, just pours right out in the middle of trials? I'm guessing no. I'm guessing you're more like me, I'm guessing you're more like everyone that trials kind of expose some things that really need to be cleaned up. And so sometimes we're tempted to think, well, if God is good um, and um, if, God, if God truly is sovereign and God is good, then why is he putting me through these trials? Is he tempting me to sin? And that's really the tendency of, of mankind, isn't it? To kind of blame others or blame our circumstances for our sins. A couple of, uh, I can think through many examples in the Bible of, of this being the case, blaming others for it. I just was thinking of two flagrant examples, flagrant fouls in this respect. Um, in the first occurs in Genesis chapter three. Adam made in the image of God, made to rule over the garden, but then God said it was not good for Adam to be alone. So God makes a, a woman, presents the woman to the man. And he says, whoa, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then in chapter three, you have this serpent appears in the garden. And tempts Adam and Eve. He addresses the, the woman. And she takes the bait. She sees that the food is good. She likes the idea of becoming like God, as the serpent said. And so she takes and eats and then keep part of this, hands it to the man who was right there with her. And then the, the Lord God, and then, of course, you know, their eyes are open. They see that they're, they're naked and they try to cover themselves up. And they hear the, the Lord walking in the, the cool of the day and they hide themselves and... Um, God calls out to the man, where are you? And he said, the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, this isn't this great. I love this. The woman who you gave me. Missy's blaming God for this. Hey, you gave, you gave her to me. The, the woman you, you gave me did it. She gave me this fruit and I ate. Husbands, have you ever done that? <laughs> hey, God, that's the woman you gave me. Not, not, a, good, not a good look. You know, it's like wife, bus. <laughs> uh, God's not buying that. 
Here's the second egregious uh, example. Total flagrant foul in this regard of blaming sin, our sins on others. And I think of um, um, Exodus chapter 32, right? So we know the story. Uh, God leads his people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He calls Moses up there and he goes, Moses, I want to have a word with you. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of words with you, actually. And you're going to write them down. And Aaron is down on the base of the mountain with all of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are going, hey, where's this Moses? What's going on? I think he's gone. He left us. Aaron, why don't you, uh, why don't you take charge? Why don't you do something? And so Aaron goes, okay, well, then give me, give me all your gold. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fashion for you out of the gold uh, uh, your gods and and it specifically uses words like keywords like engraving and he took an engraving tool and he fashioned and worked with artistry and skill and he created this calf and he shows up and he goes okay israelites here's the god who brought you up out of egypt of course god is on the mountain he sees what's going on and he's furious upset and so Interchange between God and Moses. And then Moses ends up coming down and he says these words to, to Aaron. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. And then this, you know the people. You know these guys. You know that their hearts are set on evil. Man, totally. Israelites under the bus. He goes, they said to me, God, make gods for us who will go before us. And so I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off so that they give it to me. And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> this is that's hilarious. It's hilarious when you think about it, right? It's like total flagrant. He's carving it. And he's using artistic. Hey, just boom out. This thing just popped right out of the fire. God's not buying that either. It's pretty embarrassing until you realize uh, we do the same thing. James is anticipating this objection, right? I think he knows the human heart enough and he knows that they're, we're talking about trials and yet God is sovereign in the trials and yet God is good. And so to bear up under the trials and you go, but these trials bring out the worst in me and I sin. So God is tempting me to evil. James refutes that idea right away. Notice what it says at the very beginning of verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let me rule that out for you right away. No one, when he is tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. And now James is doing an interesting play on word here because the word for trial that he's been using since verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials. He's now using the verb form of the same word. So, so the word trial and temptation, it's the same root word that he's using here. So it's a play on, play on words. So God, except there's two different concepts that are in mind here. He's talking about, yes, God will put you through a trial, but he's not going to try you to sin. Does that make sense? He's, he's going to put you through a testing, but he's not going to tempt you to sin. So here's the main point that James has for us here in these verses. 
God may put us through trials, but God does not tempt us to sin. God may put you through trials, but he does not tempt us to sin. And he explains the rationale for uh, this uh, in a couple of ways. He gives a couple of reasons for this, for why no one should say God is tempting me. First is this, the goodness of God. The very goodness of God in verse 13, the second half of verse 13. No one should say, I am being tempted for God, by God. And he gives the reason. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Or in other words, God is not to blame for our sins. God is not evil. It's quite the opposite. God is holy. God does not tell a lie. He does not commit any evil acts. God himself cannot be tempted with evil. And he, likewise, doesn't tempt anyone with evil, which would seem that that itself would be an act of evil. God is not to blame for our sins because God is holy. That's the first one. God is not evil. And not only is God not evil, God is good. And we're going to see this a little bit later in verses 16 and 17. Every good gift comes from God. Every good gift. And we'll also see that his plan for us is, is life-giving. So God is not evil. God is good. And so, therefore, God can, we cannot blame God for our sins. So he bases this on the goodness of God. God may put you through trials, but God does not tempt you, tempt us. To sin. I alluded to this in the prayer, but I was thinking about this too, about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Here's a, here's a good example of God being in the temptation, but not being guilty of committing of, of the temptation to sin, right? The very beginning of this account that we all know about Jesus being, after his baptism, being led out into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? In verse 3, the devil's name gets changed to the tempter. So the tempter came and said, and then you have the temptations. Okay? It's interesting. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. Why? To be tempted. Who does the tempting? It's not God, not the spirit, the devil. Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? Jesus is led there by God. He's tempted by the devil. And why? Why? Why is the temptation of Jesus? Why, why does this event have to happen? I think that it's important to remember this is no, this is no accident. This is a part of God's, God's plan. To send his son to go and to be tempted. So that he could succeed where all of humanity has failed. And so that we would have a Savior who fully understands. 
Writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So even though Jesus, um, so even though Jesus was victorious in the face of Satan's temptations, he did not sin. Yet going through this experience, he is now able to sympathize with you who experienced temptation. Have you ever experienced the temptation to sin? Have you ever experienced the Temptation to give in and do what God tells us not to do. Jesus understands. He understands. So God is not to blame for our sin. And here's the second rationale that James gives. First, he bases it on the goodness of God. God God's good. He can't. He's not evil. He doesn't do those sorts of things. And he gets to the second part of it. And that is moving from the goodness of God to the fallenness of man in verses 14 through 15. Or in other words, we are responsible for our sins. And here he gives kind of the anatomy and the physiology of evil and sin and how it manifests itself. Okay. Our temptation to sin comes from, or we'll call it a sin syndrome sequence. There's this kind of a sequence that takes place. Here, and here's how the sequence goes. Verse 14 is desire. Desire, you see in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and lured and enticed by his own desire. So it begins with desire. Then it leads to disobedience. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And as it goes from desire to disobedience to death in verse 15 as well. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is tempted when lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire then, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James lays the responsibility of our sin where it belongs and that's on us so we can't blame god and while james doesn't explicitly say this he says that we really we can't blame satan either can't say as the old the, the comedian back from this is totally dating me flip wilson used to have a little skit where he said uh, the preacher's wife, why would she go and buy this dress or why would she go? Well, the devil made me do it. <laughs> so that was the big, the big skit. Well, we can't, which is funny because obviously there's like, no, you're responsible for that. Knew I would date myself with that. So we can't blame anyone. We can't blame Satan for our problems. We can't blame God for our problems. We can't blame our situation for our sins. Those are our responsibility. And it's so frequent today to blame, uh, to blame God for our sinful desires. So easy to try 
to evade our responsibility for our own sinful acts. And how many of you have heard some form of this into some kind of current cultural issues, for example? God made me this way. I cannot help myself. This is who I really am. Or to blame other external forces or factors like racism or sexism or intersectionality. I'm entitled to behave this way. James just shuts down that idea. God is not to blame. Satan is to blame. The responsibility lies with us individually. Now, that sounds hopeless. That totally sounds hopeless when you start to think about that. Our tendency to sin comes from ourselves. And so our deliverance from the sin cannot come from ourselves. Bad trees can't bear good fruit. And so we are a bad tree in that regard. And so even though God does not tempt us to sin, he still acts to save us from it. Sin is on us, but salvation is on him. This is his work, which we'll see here a little bit at the end of what James has to say. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And he gets to that here at the end. What we've kind of seen so far is then kind of the fall, our fall, through temptation, all the way through sin, desire, disobedience, leading to death. So we entertain the desire in verse 14. We commit sin in verse 15. And then it leads in spiritual death at the end of verse 15. But then James now moves from kind of our, our fall to death and our responsibility that all of this is on us to our rising to new life in verses 16 through 18. Our rising to new and to eternal life. And he gives kind of a, a little sequence here in the same way that you had a sequence, a sin syndrome sequence. You have a, a, a rising to new and eternal life sequence. And here's the sequence. Verse 16, recognize the truth. We could kind of miss this as just kind of his uh, like an introductory comment to what he's going to say next. But there's a lot in here in verse 16. Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers. Kind of embedded in that is this idea that to blame God for what is ultimately our responsibility is at its root an act of deception. It's a false idea. And James wants to root that out. He goes, no, you need to recognize the truth. Recognize the truth of what I have just said and demonstrated. God is good. He can't tempt you with evil. That comes from within you. Don't be deceived. Don't try to, don't bow into whatever forces that would cause you to try and shift the blame to someone else. So first, recognize the truth. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Second is this. Receive God's gracious gifts. Verse 17. Do not be deceived. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's the one who provides every good and gracious gift. And he doesn't change. His, he is constant. He's not fickle. One of the things that distinguishes God from all of the other gods around Israel in those days is those gods were kind of um, uh, fickle. They would go from one extreme to another. They would constantly, the people would be constantly trying to figure out how to satisfy God. Because their gods didn't change. Or their gods would change. But the God of the Bible doesn't change. He's constant. And every single good and perfect gift comes from him. So to recognize God's truth, to receive God's good, gracious gift. And then lastly, the results, it results in regeneration and eternal life. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wow, what a loaded verse that is. Again, notice his work and his will of his own will. Reminds us of what another of the apostles, John, said in the beginning of his gospel in John chapter one about this new birth. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. This is referring to Jesus. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Born by God's will. That's what he's saying here. He's reminding his audience who's experiencing these trials and temptations and who are tempted to try to blame the sin that might result from these difficulties on God. And he's like, no, you got to remember, don't be deceived. Remember, he's the one from whom all good and perfect gifts come. And of his own will, he brought you forth. New birth. Being born of the spirit. And that how and and I love this part too. how he does it. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Man, that is so important for us to remember. The instrument by which regeneration comes is being born again by the spirit and by the word of truth. The spirit and word working in conjunction to take a dead person and make them alive. The spirit and the word working in conjunction to make you new. This is why Paul said, 
at the beginning of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that's the power of God for salvation. Or as he writes to the, to the Corinthians, that he said in the wisdom of God, God chose the foolishness of preaching, the preaching of his word to work into the hearts of people and make them new again. And then notice he ends with the kind of this foretaste of the redemption of all things. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the spiritual birth of believers is the first stage really of God's cosmic plan to remake the entire universe. As Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning, waiting to get what we have. Beautiful picture. James takes us from our fall and descent to death to our rising to new life here. So what is the what is James's audience? What is their what is their key problem? What is the key issue? I think here in these verses, in the midst of their trials and their difficulties, it's forgetting just exactly where our sin comes from. And where our salvation comes from. James's actions for them is to, to confess, to acknowledge the sin problems all on you. You can't shift blame to somebody else. You can't shift blame to Satan or others. And you definitely can't shift the blame to God because God is good. To confess and acknowledge that it's your fallenness that leads to your sin. And then he encourages them to go on and to receive and to believe, to remind themselves of this good gift of salvation through Christ, being born again by this word. And in the midst of all of that, he ties this, this all together. And he goes, because then when you confess and you acknowledge and you believe and you receive, then you move forward and you persevere and endure. As I said, verses 2 through 18 is all dealing with this issue of trials. And right in the heart of that is verse 12, which ties all of this together. Notice what it says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Helps us to put perseverance into perspective, doesn't it? Four things here. First is what perseverance enjoys. Well, enjoys God's favor. Blessed. Blessed is the man. Sounds like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Sounds like the beginning, the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Perseverance enjoys God's favor. Second, what perseverance proves genuine faith. The man who remains steadfast under trial, the man who, when he has stood the test, perseverance pr proves genuine faith. It's also show us how perseverance is motivated, motivated by the love of God to those who love him. It says, 
And it also says where perseverance in the midst of trials leads an eternal reward. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. The crown awarded to the winners of the Olympic games and Olympic competitions. That this isn't just a crown. This is the crown of life, eternal and abundant life. Friends, let's not forget where our sin come from. And more in particular, let's not forget where our salvation comes from. And even in the midst of that, we realize that we are experiencing these trials. And God calls us to persevere through them. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. For the abundant goodness that you have shown us. Not only in the goodness that's inherent in your nature. That you are holy. That you are not evil. That you are purely good. But also your goodness that you've shown us. In this gospel of Christ. The goodness that every good gift that we receive comes from you. We thank you that it is by your will that you have brought us forth. That you have regenerated us. That you've given us new birth. That we've been born again through Christ. We thank you that you've done this by your word. So God, we thank you for your goodness. And God, we thank you for reminding us of the hard truth of where, where our sin comes from. From our own fallenness. From our own desires that lead us to rebellion against you. God, we'd ask that you would help us to curb those desires. That we would, being led by your spirit, we would put those desires to death. And that we would seek your spirits leading in helping us to follow your will. God, we pray that you would do that in and through us as your people. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, will you stand for uh, our closing benediction? A couple of reminders. Uh, the offering box is, is out in the hallway. Um, there is no institute next Sunday. Even if you have not attended an institute yet, it's not too late. You're welcome to join us. Uh, but we won't be having it next Sunday because it's the fourth family feast. So um, it will resume in two weeks. Fourth family feast is next Sunday, the 24th. And the theme is finger foods, appetizers, and dips. Uh, so if you have any questions, talk with uh, Janet about that. And uh, also notice in your handout, too, when the next Redeemer students thing is. And then don't forget the Christmas hymn sing service on Sunday, December 22nd. 
that's going to be awesome. So, um, so if you have any uh, questions about those, um, uh, just come up and, and ask. And now for our closing benediction to close our time. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go. Thank you. Thank you.